This is a Fubar Radio podcast. For more information, go to foobarradio.com. Politics matters with Eleanor Penny. General election coverage on Fubar Radio. I do think that Brexit is the biggest foreign policy blunder of the post-war period. period. Well, you said can, I, can, I, can, can you allow me to finish? Uh, well, do you mind? Yeah, but I asked you a question and you're no. ignoring it. No, I'm not ignoring the question. If you'd give me a minute, I'll answer it. come under a lot of pressure then to support Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister because he will be promising a so-called people's Let me be incredibly clear about this. Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, I do not believe are fit to be Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Body language throughout this evening has been so contemptuous of this house sit, and of the people. Up, and for the benefit up, of Hansard, the up, leader of the house has been spread across around three seats, lying out. If you ask me why am I relatable, I don't, you know, how, how am I relatable? I've not the faintest I've idea. I've not the faintest idea. It seems to me the uh, most difficult psychological question that anybody's ever well, asked me. Hello and good afternoon and welcome to another blistering day in this, the fastest and most furious election of our lifetimes, where we're wrangling over nothing less than the fate of the economy, the fate of the planet and the fate of all Westminster pundits who at this point want nothing more than to lie down in a dark room and cry. You are listening to Politics Matters, FUBAR Radio's very own election coverage show where we bring you news and views to rake through the jargon and fact check the farce. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and you can tweet along or send me happy tales of the outside world on at Eleanor K. Penny on Twitter, or you can follow us uh, on at FUBAR Radio on all good social media platforms. You can also email us your thoughts on uh, politics matters at FUBARradio.com, and we'll try and get to them uh, during the show or later on. So... This week has seen the launch of both the Labour and Conservative official uh, manifestos, a massive voter registration drive, as well as two leadership d- debates, one of who, which saw the party in government try and mask its own propaganda machine as, quote-unquote, a fact-checking organisation, which is definitely an idea which only occurs to those for whom consequences are something that happen only to other people. So... A lot of stuff to sort through. Joining me first in the studio are uh, Wate, a rapper and filmmaker, and Dr. Kojo Karam, a lecturer on law and author of recent book, The War on Drugs and the Global Colour Line. Uh, First up, we'll be reviewing those big headlines, and then we'll be delving into criminal justice and policing. Later on, I'll be joined by Keris Roberts, and we'll delve into what the hell is happening with uh, with health and social care in this country, and just what we do about it. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to talk about the most important thing. So, I've heard a lot of talk these days. I, I hear a lot of people saying, if voting changed anything they'd make it illegal. Well, this sure as hell tried to. They tried to make voting illegal for some people. It actually is still illegal for some people in this country, and that should probably tell us something. A few weeks ago, the Conservative government tried to introduce voter ID laws to solve a so-called problem of voter fraud, which every uh, reputable source out there agrees does not exist. So young people, people of colour, people on low incomes, people with a fixed address are most likely to be shoved off the um, electoral registers, a.k.a. people who are less represented in the political process anyway, less registered to vote, less likely to vote Tory when they do. Boris Johnson has put out a clear, has not put out a single announcement telling people when and how and if to register to vote. And all of this is a pretty clear signal that powerful people do not want you to register to vote. So please defy them. Tell them to fuck off. Register to vote now. The deadline is midnight. Pester your mates to do the same. Uh, you, can, you just need your national insurance number, which is on any document you'll have received from your employer or the taxman or the council things like that checked old pay slips p60s letters about tax that kind of thing even if you don't know that you're going to vote or who you're going to vote for after midnight you won't have a choice unless you're signed up and commonwealth citizens can vote too rant over register to vote now okay i feel i feel a lot better i feel like very that was like cathartic for me 
Welcome, gentlemen. How are you doing? I have Awate and Koja Karam with me in the studio. How are you feeling today? Not too bad. Thank you for having us. <laughs> you are very welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. So did either of you manage to catch the leadership debates? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely watched it. I watched the Joe Swinson part on repeat the night before as well, the night after, just for entertainment value. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, bless it. It was like she'd already poured like petrol over her political credibility <laughs> and there was just a room full of people with lip matches going come on oh. L- actually relatedly the uh fubar street team have gone out um, and asking people you know what they think of politics and they've been asking people what they think of joe swinson and this has been the overwhelming response if you had to describe joe swinson in three words what would it be no idea who that is <laughs> well i have no idea about him i have no idea about him foolish unrealistic not, I don't know. Them. I couldn't give you a third one. Sorry. So apparently, that last person ended up not actually knowing who this person is. Probably for the best, because uh, it turns out that the less people see of her, the more they actually like her, which is not a particularly flattering uh, uh, correlation. But um, any other any other thoughts apart from sheer glee? She, she's got, she's got no um, moral compass, right? She's got no conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, the easiest thing to put to Joe Swinson is you voted for some of the most disgustingly brutal policies that have come to this country ever, ever, right? You sat there as um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer created a narrative. Literally, this isn't like looking back now, nine years later, eight years later, and with revisionist history. He literally said... It is a problem between the strivers and the skivers, mm-hmm. right? Having never even said the word skiver before in his life, <laughs> right? His name is Gideon, and he is rich, yeah. right? He's his whole life, yeah. Right? yeah. You know, through narratives. It's like but he decided to, him, to try and he? use working-class language, mm-hmm. like skiver, to make working-class people hate each other. Mm-hmm. She was there during that. Whenever it's put to her, she says, listen, there were mistakes made. We made mistakes. We, um, we fought back on uh, the two-child policy, and we fought back on this, and we tried you know, to make some concessions on the bedroom tax. And I, you know, when you're in a coalition, it is hard. She's not, she never actually ever addresses the fact that her, Joe Swinson, the human being, Joe Swinson, voted for those things with the Conservatives. She says we were in a we were in a, a coalition, whatever, whatever. The thing about all of this is that one of the of the leaders of 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 the parties at the moment has always voted with his conscience, with their conscience. Has always voted with their conscience. I think Nicola Sturgeon always mo- most of the time has as well. But out of the the two who could become prime minister, and the one who thinks she can as well for some reason. <laughs> Um, one of them has always voted for what they think is right and it turns out to be right later on down the line um, deciding to not side any way with the whole Brexit situation is turning out to be a great situation as we saw in that question time debate yeah. right? she got she got attacked from so many different angles because you're, you, you're telling people that democracy is not good and that they're stupid and even Remain voters have that idea, right? That, that it's condescending to revoke Article 50. Um, but she will never address the fact that she voted for austerity. She voted ag- against disabled children and, and all that kind of stuff, like, repeatedly. And it's completely, like, that kind of, um, that combination of, of condescension and, and lack of a real sort of emotional material connection to like what you've done that kind of sense of personal responsibility it kind of fascinates me because it's indicative of a a politics or an attitude to politics that that talks about it in terms of this bloodless sport that's about bartering it's about numbers Mm. on a sheet and when i when i hear people talk from the conservative party and from the lib dems about you know we tried we made mistakes like we're really sorry it's like do you think do you think you stepped on my toe do, do you think you do you think you spilled my drink? No, a hundred and twenty thousand people at least are dead. And like, okay, 
usually for everyone else if we fuck up in our jobs we get hauled into hr or we get fired like where is the where is the sense that like if you have like the admitting you've made a mistake is just so woefully insulting and inadequate in the face of like the scale of the mistakes that you've made i find it genuinely kind of um, baffling. I feel, feel like I'm kind of spectating some sort of alien blood sport when I'm looking at it because it's so far removed yeah. from like the emotional reality of people who actually have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah from, life. from life. Because they're, they're, they're divorced from life. They're protected, insulated from that. Like, I just don't know what the Lib Dems are thinking about picking someone as leader who was so intimately tied to the coalition government you know i think that you know it's this idea that if they just presented themselves as anti-brexit party that we just forget all that bloodshed all that loss of life you know the bedroom tax and the um tuition fee betrayal you know um and the thing about it oh well we were in coalition we just had to make compromises david cameron's recent book there's that little section where he talks about how when they were talking about the tuition fees george osborne george osborne gideon <laughs> says to nick clegg look don't do this you know you will be destroying your own party's credibility and you know i you know i obviously want to screw over students but i also want the coalition to last so don't do this and nick clegg goes no this is part of our commitment to the coalition we're going to sign up to this and <laughs> then, like, and then, and then they won a majority exactly. and then in 2015 they won a majority oh, I remember that, that like, night this country oh. voted to kill itself like after five years mm. of it being helped by people who like what? they decided to just put the devil in charge completely <laughs> Like, after it was like, oh, the devil, but the, the devil's mate was like, no, I'm at least trying to, do you know what I mean, book some restaurant visits so that there's like, <laughs> and like some toilet breaks and sleep so that there's yeah. at least like some breaks from all the devilishness. Like, n what a country. Like, <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Hate, like, hate filled people who hate themselves. Like, it's insane. And we're now feeling the consequences of it because, yeah, 2015 obviously led to that commitment to do the Brexit. Um, referendum and now it led to Ed Miliband leaving though that was the, <laughs> the best thing that happened yeah, that came out of it I feel like you know, like Ed Miliband now has been adopted as this like you know like people's like cute weird lefty uncle and I feel like we haven't really had a reconciliation with just how terrible <laughs> like 90% of the decisions that he made as as leader a leader were and like we haven't had like importantly a reconciliation with the fact that he put controls on immigration exactly. on a mug like, yeah. it, on a mug. like the, two, the Edstone the Edstone yeah I was going to say where is it because I, I was thinking the other day um, that Edstone situation is basically Joe Swinson's bus <laughs> right oh my god yeah. Yeah. I, I want that decal after this election right? <laughs> I want to find out where they're going to try and leave it and I, I just want to wrap my house in it like Joe Swinson's Lib Dems like a giant face like just. a beauty queen just like parading around <laughs> behind it with but I think fully when we think about in the wind. when we think about Ed Miliband the difference between Corbyn just like Awate said before I think that you know, especially towards the end, towards the election, he started making decisions out of fear and out of panic because of oh, all the poll numbers and we did this focus group and you better go hard on immigration otherwise we might lose, you know, Stoke-on-Trent and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. While someone like Corbyn sticks to his principles, sticks to what he believes, even if it appears that it's not going to be popular in that immediate moment. And I think that, you know, that's the kind of politician that people want to get behind and what people need in this current moment. You know, and that's the real difference between him and Ed Miliband, not just in terms of their politics, but also in terms of their kind of personal commitment to their politics. Talking of personal commitments, I kind of want to get your guys' take on the manifesto. Obviously, in the last week, we've had the actual detail <coughs> in black and white, some more detailed than others, yeah. um, of the uh, main two parties' uh, manifestos. Um, the thing that strikes me, most of all, is just how thin on the ground the Tory manifesto is and I come to like okay stepping back pretending that we don't live in the world th that we do in a rarefied sense a manifesto is supposed to be an argument for why you should be put in power right that is a pretty flimsy argument <laughs> for five not just like five years yeah. which is a long bloody time uh, but five years that covers Brexit mm -hmm. and one of the key moments for being able to avoid the climate catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Really kind of quite odd for um, for like for them to be offering that 
as their argument. And again, it strikes it strikes me as just like, do these people think that they have this? Like this rarefied right to rule. Like that's the only way I can explain it. Or they're trying yes. to hide something. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's very simple, yeah. And also, it's very hard to um, to campaign on anything different after you've been in power for nine years. You can't say, oh, we need change, we need radical change. Like even some of the stuff that's in them in their manifesto is um is 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 uh is going back on conservative party manifestos of the past, right? Like the corporation tax thing, like p- p- um, numbers of pigs on the streets, like all that kind of stuff is completely different. It's, it's completely uh, um, the opposite of what they previously were doing. But if they had any more of it, it would seem like, you know, vote for us, we're the party of change, but you've been in power, so like change actually is going for someone, someone else this time, I think. <laughs> yeah, it would seem particular. Sorry, Carol. I was going to say, I also think that it's disdain for everyday people because they're like, we're offering you nothing. Like, we are offering you literally nothing. You know, there is the Labour manifesto that's talking about, you know, the free broadband that's being extended as infrastructure across the country, talking about um, free university education for young people. We're talking about free bus travel for under 25s, which would make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these are forward looking 21st century politics um, that people are looking for to offer to improve your everyday life. And the Conservatives are like, we're not going to offer you anything. We just want to offer you Brexit. That's all you want. And, you know, like I was saying before, I think if you're getting a choice between everything and nothing and you choose <laughs> nothing, then it's like you deserve everything you get, really. And that's what I feel like in this <laughs> election. <laughs> if the British public actually vote for the Tory manifesto that is saying, listen, we're, we are giving you literally nothing. Like 50,000 nurses that, you know, the reality is 20,000 of them are already trained. We're just going to retain them. All of that stuff. It's very, very thin on the ground. It's complete disdain for things that will improve your everyday life. And if you're willing to vote for that over something that could make tangible changes, getting rid of universal credit, you know, free free travel, all of that stuff, then you really deserve everything you get. Well, like a billion pounds for childcare, right, which is one pound per child per week. That'll which, do it. Yeah, that, that, I think that's how much it costs, right, yeah. for babysitters uh, and, and for nursery. <laughs> um, and two billion for potholes, right, to, to fill potholes. Nation, the largest pothole filling... with the babies. Um, <laughs> drive <laughs> ever, yeah, exactly. Like, so... Because rich people all use roads, right, mm. if, they, if they're not using helicopters and private jets, mm. but they don't all need a quid a week for their kids, right? Yeah. Like that is, it's, 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 a, it's very plain. To yeah, see. it's pretty like, transparent. <laughs> what I'm really curious about, though, because like, um, like both of you have like written and, and talked in like in amazing kind of detail and clarity about one of the things that is perennially uh, what some people would call a touchstone, what other people would call a failure of uh, like left-wing projects, which is criminal justice and policing. Because at the moment we're seeing uh, Labour and the Conservatives trying to outgun each other, trying to put more police back on the street. Like, why is this like why is this always a reflex why is this always an an impulse that like every manifesto like no matter what your like supposed political allegiances you know mm. you have to talk tough in quote um, quote unquote on crime and justice like what's going on there like go to a nursery and look at the toys that the kids have mm. there's going to be police in there like it's it, look on the look at the BBC and ITV's entire list of shows that they pay for, TV shows that they pay for making, like scripted dramas, and at least 50% of them are police dramas. Police aren't 50% of our society. They're overrepresented, and their role is overrepresented as well. Like, they go out there and save people. No, like, youth workers save people. Teachers save people. Um, bus drivers are out there saving people. Like, those are, the, those are the real public servants, right? Nurses and people who actually, like, therapists are the people that do it, but there's an obsession with the police because they protect private property and they make people feel safer if they're a certain demographic. I don't feel safer whenever I see a police officer. I remember all the times that I've been battered, arrested, assaulted, maliciously prosecuted by the police. Um, and all the times my friends have had that happen, my friends that have been killed by police, my friends that have been... Bat- like. 
Yeah. Um, more police numbers aren't going to save your children. They're going to attack your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, just to jump in on that, I think that it's always ignored from this debate the communities that have a completely different response to police presence, like mentioned. You know what I mean? I'm not just talking about, you know, black and Caribbean communities and African communities where there is obviously a long history. You know, you grow up hearing about uncles who've been taken into the back of police vans and battered and, you know, people who have ended up in a police station and then, fortunately, you know, they didn't make it out. Um, But there's loads of other minority communities, there's whole areas of the country, you know, places like Liverpool, places, you know what I mean, like, you know, around Manor House and Stamford Hill where there's just no, there's a real belief in kind of community levels of protection and you know security as opposed to trusting the state police force and that's always ignored you know when we celebrate the police um, when people like Priti Patel are really trying to ramp up this law and order rhetoric and talk about well we need greater stop and search powers we need all of you know these greater numbers of police in order to stop um, the um, you know kind of latest moral panic um, you're really talking to a very slim proportion of the British public but unfortunately it is one with a lot of wealth with a lot of power and with a lot of influence and that's who they're appealing to what i'm curious about is is how the 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 idea of policing not necessarily like how that actually impacts actual people's lives but the idea of like what it means to have like a safe street or a street that is well policed is kind of drafted in as a as a plaster over like a massive gaping wound at like at best and does kind of tend to replace or distract from conversations that need to be about like funding services or mental health or like you know giving people like greater access to like legal migration that kind of thing um but in the labor manifesto they do talk about that and why I'm what I'm kind of frustrated by and curious about is why the kind of police response still needs to be like slapped defensively on top of it and like when we've seen for instance in Glasgow um strategies that have adopted more of a kind of public health um a public health approach have worked much better in tackling serious youth violence for instance than you know, strategies that just involve criminalising, policing, locking people up. Like, what do you think is going on there? Um, I think, again, it's it's choosing to commit to ideology over evidence. Like, we know what works. We know what the causes of kind of crime breakouts are, and we know what works in terms of trying to address that. And we are talking about, you know, the early engagement in youth intervention projects in mental health facilities in you know what I mean supporting those who have that initial contact with young people not just thinking about you know the kind of response to the the kind of crime knife crime epidemic in Glasgow but you know we can look at places all around the world whether we're talking about Juarez Mexico whether we're talking about you know Cali Colombia you know we're talking about places in which they've tried you know all our military approaches in terms of trying to resolve um, kind of crime epidemics, you know, giving local police forces, you know, weaponry that you should only expect to see in absolute conflict. Like in, in, in Rio on the streets right now, yeah. like I was in Rio a year ago, there's like the army on the streets. Mm. It doesn't stop anything. It doesn't stop. Like it's getting it worse. Like, like it just escalates things. Yeah. Like if, if Tory donors owned and funded youth centres then we'd see the most money we'd ever see we'd ever seen going into youth centres, right? Because they'd make money off it. <laughs> but they don't. They own pr- prisons, right? Arms, every prison, every prison, yeah, and they're arms dealers, right? Every prison built since 1997 has been a private prison, and they make money per inmate. So it makes more sense to punish someone for something and put them in jail and get money for one of your donors than it is to stop that thing from happening in the first place by making someone's life worthwhile, like giving them youth services, by giving them uh, education uh, opportunities, by giving them um, f- benefits if they need them because they're, you know, they're on the brink of being homeless, mental health support, because we're, from, you know, our, we're traumatised in the communities we live in because of poverty and because of the cycle of violence that it, it creates, because... You know, it doesn't feel good to be poor. Like, it hurts. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, th- 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 that's what it is, basically. These pe- th- they'd rather punish other people's children for something because they c- there's no... 
no one cares about context. Like, yeah. It's just that simple. It doesn't even make economic sense either. Like, famously, you know, it costs as much to send a young kid to prison or more to send a young kid to prison than it does to send them to Eton. And so they're willing to pay the costs of kind of prisons because of that potential profit that can be accrued with these kind of privatized institutions and also the social control of uh, a population that I guess they see as surplus to the actual developments of capital production you know mm -hmm. huge amounts of migrant um, you know working class and minority communities are now basically seen as surplus towards ways of reproducing capital and so might as well lock them up over police them over surveil them and then lock them up mm -hmm. so and, and sorry, can, like you, can you unpack for a second what, what do you what you mean by surplus to reproducing capital for our listeners? Um, well, as we've transitioned from a much more industrial society in this part of the world into one that's a much more service orientated society and one that wealth is accrued from things like you know a rentier economy. You know, landlords are now you know they're doing really well in this <laughs> under this society. You know, if you own um, if you if you have some shares in a multinational corporation, that might be you know what I mean, producing things in Bangladesh or Sri Lanka and then selling them to a wider European market. You're doing really well. But in terms of how many human beings do you now need to fill up a factory, to fill up a, a dockyard, to fill up, you know what I mean, a steel factory and stuff like that, that's a lot less than than, than, than was needed, you know, in, in, the, in the, the kind of previous centuries like, gone past. why so are you still here? Why are you exactly. still here, basically? Like the same, Enoch Powell went around the Caribbean islands telling people to come to Britain. Exactly. Not many people know that. No, that's right? I, that, this is the first I'm hearing <laughs> hearing yeah. about it. It was his job. It was his job me to pain. go to the Caribbean and tell people we've got jobs for you. We've got houses, right? We've got this beautiful boat called the Windrush. Come and rebuild. Like, this yeah, is Enoch Powell. Sorry, Enoch Powell. If anyone hasn't right? heard of Enoch Powell, he's the guy. And then thirty years later, uh, you know, talking about rivers of blood because there's so many Pakistani and black people in the country. Um, it's the same situation. Why are you still here? We asked you here to, to sweep up the streets and to help us after World War Two, and uh, the, uh, the, your countries that we still own, you know, we're going to use that, you know, all of your resources to rebuild our country after World War Two, um, after your soldiers died on our behalf, but we don't put them in any films yeah. that we're going to make for the next 50 years <laughs> yeah. about World War, any, any of the wars. Yeah. Um, why are you still here? So when actors from London or from the UK go to America and become immensely successful uh, someone literally from two two minutes away from here I can see his house from here was nominated for an Oscar at the age of 28 a young Ugandan actor right is working in America mostly now why how about his stop and search situation that happened on Camden High Street where they tried to batter him and they won't give him that many jobs in this country right and 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 when someone does try to make something and put a film in the cinema in and and there are scuffles because so you're talking about kids get excited, excited. Yeah, yeah they they take it out of every cinema nationwide in one of the largest chains of cinemas we have in this country like yeah, you're not, you're not, we're not welcome, yeah, basically. It's a really, it's a very like, interesting kind of comparison because I think we have a tendency in this country to think of things like problems with policing and criminal justice and particularly problems with um, the private prison system as something that is like uniquely American, mm. right? Which is complete, you know, it's complete nonsense, mm. has always been complete nonsense, but there is a tendency for us to go like, it's really, yeah, it's terrible, really. Isn't it bad over there? Yeah. No, absolutely. I've spent a little bit of time working not only in America but in the in the South, in the criminal justice system in the South America, Louisiana. And of course, like it is also shocking in one way, but it's also kind of kind of like cathartic in another way because at least it's being talked about there the kind of racial discrimination of mass incarceration over there. At least you know what I mean. It, this kind of like those battle lines are clear, and you can see a Republican politician on TV. You know talking in very derogatory ways about African-Americans in the United Kingdom, what's really frustrating is the kind of denial of this problem. The potential, oh, no, we don't have that kind of... We would never say that. About repugnant. But, you know, we wouldn't let, you know, any of the British actors or British academics or whatever get any kind of career in this country. You know, they have to go to America to actually make their life or make their institution. And so I think that, you know, it works in a perhaps more insidious way here in the United Kingdom, and that's something that we really need 
the public conversation to challenge. I saw on Twitter this morning, I think it was Robert Pesson, sorry to Robert Pesson if it wasn't him, um, uh, tweeting about in the context of uh, recent discussions about anti-Semitism, the Labour Party, Britain has always been a beacon of tolerance and understanding. And then I just like propped a pencil up on, on the desk and just headbutted it. Uh, <laughs> so just to take myself off into oblivion, because like, honestly, it, it, it's the kind of, yeah, it's it's an incredibly frustrating a historical approach that, that really blocks us from being able to have an honest brokering of what some solutions are. Going back to the Lib Dems very briefly, um, they've promised uh, 500 million uh, for youth services, specifically in the context of um, uh, tackling knife crime. Uh, for this is a this is an audio medium, so everyone can't can't hear me um, doing the scare quote <laughs> signals with my fingers. But a um, couple of a couple of things there. A is it enough? B is it the right approach? And see why own like this is this is this is me revealing my personal um, beefs here. But like, why only when children are dying? <laughs> like because that's the, that's the thing, right? Like everyone's talking about tackling like tackling knife crime by funding youth services. Like, isn't it just okay? Like, yeah, isn't, Listen, isn't it just they, they worth only care? It? They only care about kids that like. One of the for me, one of the funniest. I'm from I'm metropolitan elite baby, <laughs> right? By the way, welcome. Right, I'm from Camden, no NW one. Right, <laughs> I am. Whenever I see these stories about uh, county lines, yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it, right? Because they care about drugs, or they care about kids, like any, anything happening to do with kids now. When it comes to Norwich, right? yeah, because. Can you explain kids, what c- county lines London, are? Sorry, kids from London and the city are going to other other towns and smaller cities around the country and selling drugs and recruiting young people in those areas to sell drugs. But do you know who they're selling the drugs to? To the middle class people who <gasps> need their cocaine. <laughs> no. Right? So it's like, you're getting our kid, our Timmy, your Dwayne has come to our town <laughs> and is getting Timmy and his mates to sell coke and they're, they're being threatened by the cartel in London but because I need my coke on a Saturday. <laughs> like, it is beautiful, right? Yeah. They f- they care about any of these situations because, like, it's, white kids are getting hurt. It's the same as the opioid situation. Like, heroin and crack were big in London uh, and big in, in Manchester and big in a lot of the cities. But And then, you know, pharmaceutical companies just kind of, yeah, flood the market with opioids and then people have to take heroin again. Like, So, Kojo... I'm curious as to your response to the manifestos and their policies on on drugs because no one has moved to towards decriminalization or legalization which seems like a uh, apart from the Lib Dems yeah, which well, which <laughs> you know as as we've collectively ranted about and also like a thing that's really important to emphasize that um the idea of cannabis legalization in and of itself is not necessarily progressive policy. Mm-hmm. It can be done and it has been done in places like Colorado in a very kind of regressive way. So when it's not accompanied with things like commuting of sentences, when it's not accompanied with things like investment in over police communities, in Colorado you now have the situation where you have marijuana dispensaries um, that are owned by hedge funds selling weed at the same time as people are still in prison for selling weed. And if those people who are in prison for selling weed come out of prison, they, they are drugs. one of the few people who cannot, by law, open up a marijuana dispensary. Or work in, <laughs> or work in a dispensary. Yeah, exactly. Or work in the so, marijuana industry. You'd think so, so with the American exactly. entrepreneurial spirit, think, they'd think, be the... You know, use, use the experience. But <laughs> it depends out. on... So places like Massachusetts have learned from the experience of Colorado, and they've been much more progressive. So they've included a portion of licenses that are specifically for people who have either been in prison or had a parent in prison for drug offences. They've included a portion of the taxes that have to be placed into over police and over surveilled communities and so you know these are the kind of things that accompanying uh, cannabis legalization could be progressive and you know you're not going to get that from the Lib Dems <laughs> so I don't think that it's necessarily a, a good thing but we need to think about you know what's the connections between um, kind of yeah um, racial over policing over imprisonment and um, the current drug laws that we have and and, and, it, and it is legal now by the way you can get it from private um, from private doctors can write you a prescription mm. and you can pay something like 800 pound a gram 
um, for for weed now in the UK. So it is legal. You just have to be rich enough. <laughs> Um, you have to be Michael Gove being like, oh, yeah, I took cocaine once. And, and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and the, the few people who have even had those appointments who have medical conditions that desperately need that type of medication yeah. that has THC and CBD in it, um, very few of them can afford that, obviously. So just to wrap up, um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you guys want to see. Um, like, I'm From your previous statements, I'm assuming you're kind of both on the Labour train. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to know is, like, what more do you want to see from the Labour Party beyond their manifest and beyond their current commitments? Um, I think, you know, what kind of is being announced today about kind of um, this national curriculum revisiting of Britain's relationship with empire, I think is a really great development way overdue. You know, there's a hilarious section in Tony Blair's autobiography where he talks about in the handover of Hong Kong how he starts talking to the Chinese premier about the opium wars and he goes I've just got to fluff my way through it because I don't know anything about it and that's you know these elite you know members of society you know imagine if we met a you know a German or Russian or American head of state who knew nothing about the world wars would be like oh that's ridiculous but that's how Britain operates around the world the whole time you know Northern Ireland Kashmir Hong Kong all these issues that are contemporary issues that have their roots in British imperial violence, we know nothing about and we never learn about. So I think pushing that forward, not only at the kind of, you know, secondary school education level, but in the much wider public consciousness, you know, the kind of the films about British history and all that kind of stuff, I think, need to reflect that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anawate? Yeah, for me, um, yeah, I'd just like to see a bit more um, common sense when it comes to policing, and uh, immigration as well, um, rather than reactionary stuff in the manifesto, as well as, you know, an end to prevent, uh, rather than just a review. So, yeah, pushing further. But, yeah, I'm, you know, uh, even if you're not registered to vote, please do, because it will help your credit score. Even if you don't vote, <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, I need and I need all the help I can get. Um, so, w- talking of uh, progressive policies and manifesto launches, welcome to the se- the segment, brand new, debuted right now in front of you two gentlemen. We like to call, where is Jacob Rees Mogg? Where has Jacob Rees-Mogg, the ghost of a Victorian factory owner, living argument for the non-existence of meritocracy, and of course, Conservative MP for North East Somerset, gone? Uh, He he was treated as this like lovable, charming eccentric, and uh, then he started becoming more powerful. People started to um, hear what he was saying, and they quickly became embarrassed. They'd never they'd ever laughed at him, and he's been missing for most of the campaign. Um, he wasn't at the manifesto launch and we can only assume that the Tories are like keeping him in some kind of uh, gilded cupboard away from the limelight because he has this unfortunate habit of telling people what he actually (laughs) thinks of them Um, and so I hope he's keeping himself entertained somehow totally unrelated news Mm. entirely true news Um, people uh, police have made an arrest relating to a case of and I quote a latex clad gimp terrorising a sleepy village in uh, northeast Somerset. Anyway, best of luck (laughs) to everyone concerned. Uh, We're just about to go to break. Thank you so much for joining me to Koja Kram and Awate. We will be right back. Thank you. Um, And uh, just playing for you a little little clip of um, (laughs) Michael Michael Gove dying on his arse. Thank you very much. 40 new hospitals. Is, is that true or false? Mr. Boris Johnson says 40 yes, new hospitals. Is. That's yes, true. it is. But I think a critical you thing... You think it's true? I think a critical thing, Kieran, is that if you want to have a, a, a proper conversation... Uh, no, there'll be 40. If you want to have a proper conversation, then we can have a proper conversation. But, um, of course, what you want to do is to mount a polemical case. And, of course, that's, that's perfectly this legitimate. It's scrutiny, Mr. Gove. No, We're just asking you simple questions about what is true or not so the voters can make up their minds. It's a polemical... Tell me, tell me this, then. You did it's say... It's a polemical argument, Kieran. No, 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 no. Do you want to go over Brexit? I, um, I, I do, but one of the things is that 
you're using this interview as an opportunity, and I completely understand it, to mount an argument. No, there's a it's perfectly not, respectable. For the truth. There is a perfectly respectable type of journalism in which you mount an argument, you use rhetoric, you interrupt, what rhetoric, Mr. you Lord? have a series of propositions which you believe in. That's perfectly fair journalism. What it's not is objective. What it's not is it's not in the objective best... to ask you if you're going to build no, forty no. hospitals or six. No, because what you've How done is, that not is that you have an argument that you want to prosecute. It's not. I'm asking you: Are there going to be forty hospitals or six? What can be more objective than that? Uh, well, I've explained earlier forty, but the whole line that we're only going to build six, of course, is a is a labour line. It's one of the labour lines that was repeated by Jeremy Corbyn last night. You're repeating it now again. The BBC perfectly, the same perfectly thing legitimate and polemical journalism, Kieran. The but, same thing. Uh, but the one of the things are they about all polemics as well? Uh, one of the things about fact-checking is that it's important that we do have independent corroboration. That's what we did last night that wasn't independent, Jeremy that was Corbyn's... Yes, but it was based on objective criteria. And objective criteria are important in elections, as are, is the expression of opinion. And you want to express a particular opinion, and I'm, I'm fine with that, but I think it's only fair that Channel 4 viewers recognise that what you're doing is putting forward a particular point of view in order to create a particular argument. And again, that's fine. People will know that you're Mr. arguing... Sure people will be very confused about what you're talking about because you're asking for simple facts, yeah, simple truth. No, 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 I, I think people will know... Let's talk about Brexit and getting Brexit done because that's what you're here to say. So I think, you're talking about getting I think, I, no, no, I think people will know exactly what you're doing, which is fine, which is mounting a rigorous left-wing case for a particular political point of view, and that is fine. People know that. They know that's what you and Channel 4 News do, and then it's only fair that people so can make a judgment about that. allegations here, and, and I think that they wouldn't stand up to objective scrutiny. Politics Matters with Eleanor Penny, general election coverage on Bar Radio. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again on Politics Matters on FUBAR Radio. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and you can tweet me um, at Eleanor K. Penny, or you can get at FUBAR Radio on all good social media platforms. We want to hear from you. I have with me in the studio Dr. and MP Prospective Martin Edible and economist Karis uh, Roberts. And before I pick their delightful and uh, very complex brains on the subject of the NHS, social care, ownership, all that good stuff. I want to revisit the most important subject of the day. Wait for it. Turn down your volumes if you must. Register to vote! God damn it, it is the last day on which you personally, you who I'm talking to right now with the earphones on, can register to vote. So please do it. Also, if you're homeless, if you don't have access to a fixed address for whatever reason, if you're a Commonwealth citizen, if you are currently 17 but will be 18 by the time that the election rolls around, you too can register to vote. So please do it and please personally bully every person that you know to do it as well you will have my eternal gratitude and also possibly a livable planet what a delightful reward for all of our good work so welcome both of you it's really good to have you in the studio thanks for having me oh it is absolutely a pleasure so we are talking about one of the most hotly debated topics and one of the dearest to the hearts of the British electorate, irrespective of uh, what kind of political uh, political background you draw f- you draw you draw your allegiance from. There we go. Um, managed to stumble my way through that. What we just heard in the break is uh, Channel Four having an extremely bizarre argument with Michael Gove, um, f- who seems to. Be of the assumption that if he just denies it long enough, people will believe him when he says that they're going to build 40 new hospitals, which is a promise which is in the manifesto, the Conservative manifesto, which has just been published, but has been rigorously debunked both before and since. Um, this seems to be a bit of a pattern. This is uh, this is Nicky Morgan um, claiming on the claim that they will hire uh, 50,000 new nurses. 50,000 more nurses are being promised. Now, if you have a look at those figures, it suggests that around 19,000 of the 50,000 figure will come from keeping nurses we've already got. How can you say that there's going to be 50,000 more if 19,000 already are there? 
Well, because the 50,000 more is exactly what it says, which is that in 10 years' time, there will be 50,000 more nurses in our NHS, which obviously is good news for patients and, and their families in terms of making sure that when they need the NHS, there are people there but obviously you're to look after them. That was um, the Piers Morgan show having to intervene to explain the concept and existence of mathematics to uh, one of the most powerful politicians in the land. And we live in times in which uh, we can even find ourselves agreeing with Piers Morgan <laughs> very, very briefly on a very, very, very specific thing. Very briefly. Very briefly, you know. So you are doctor you've yes. had experience in the nhs so you are uh, you're running for parliament for whittam i believe it is? yes whittam and essex whittam and F essex mm. so um i'd like you to briefly humor me by removing your prospective parliamentary candidate yeah, hat. that's completely gone now yeah completely gone GP out the mode. window yeah. Um, we should have brought props. Really, yeah, that's we, our bad. Yeah, it's okay. Um, you know. Thank you for your forgiveness. Very, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, and uh, with your doctor's coat on, shall we say, what's it been like kind of working behind the scenes, behind the lines at the NHS? Yeah, so the as everyone knows, the NHS has been struggling to cope with the unrelenting demands on it. Um, you know, both um, physical health and social care and mental health have not experienced the investments that it, it rightly needs under the Tory government. For me personally, um, I've seen patients have to wait months to get basic referrals and be seen by a specialist. I've seen the waiting times for um, access to um, mental health services, just such as seeing a counsellor, extend. Um, I've also seen the wider effects of government policy on my patients day to day. For example, I've seen patients coming malnourished, you know, with nutritional deficiencies because they're either having to rely on feedback and not getting the dietary needs, uh, dietary uh, needs they require. So, you know, from one aspect, our healthcare system, due to ten years of austerity, has not got the investment that it needs to meet its demand. And then there's the workforce issues. We, we heard there um, earlier on the Perth Morgan show, you know, we have a, currently, Royal College nurses have stated that there's a 40,000 deficit in the number of nurses that's required. That can increase to 70,000 potentially in the next five years. And then there's not enough GPs. You know, we have a shortfall of around 2,500 GPs, and that's going to increase. And we had, um, you know, Jeremy Hunt when he was health secretary state that we would have 5,000 more GPs by 2020 and they failed on that. So, you know, the NHS is not just at breaking point. I say, I believe that we've gone past that. You know, every single metrical measure has shown that it's failing. And from the wider, um, you know, economy, a lot of it is because of both a lack of investment and also a mismanagement um, from the Tories with the general economy as well. So, Let's talk that um, an economics perspective on this because we say we talk a lot about the NHS being privatized, right? What are we actually talking about when we talk about privatization? Because it is this kind of vague concept, and there is a sort of um, there is a sort of generally held common sense, quote unquote. Um, that you know the private market is where innovation happens, and so in in one sense, like why is privatization a bad thing for the health service? Well, when people talk about privatization, they're talking about several things. So one of those things is that we have what is called an internal market in the NHS, um, and that means that different uh, private providers will be bidding for public money, um, and it's meant to be competitive and therefore drive um, drive quality improvements. Uh, recent evidence actually, actually suggests that that is costing the NHS money and that it is not operating in the way that you would expect a market to operate. So that's one element. I think another really important element is uh, PFIs, the private finance initiatives, which we saw um, in the 2000s. And this is quite a technical point. But essentially, because the government didn't want to invest in the NHS, they instead brought in private finance to do that. And they've really ended up paying over the odds. And um, so actually, for about £13 billion of assets, we paid about £80 billion publicly, which, quite frankly, is a bit of a rip-off. So those are some of the really big issues when we talk about privatisation in the NHS. And presumably, like, what this needs is is not just a kind of a headline figure of funding, right, but a, but a restructuring, because that is... 
one of the one of the key differences between manifestos from the Liberal Democrats, from the Greens, the way in which, uh, and obviously the t- main two parties, the way in which they understand the problem that's going on here, and the way in which they they understand the kind of um, the kind of resources that need to be dedicated in order to fund it. So we all kind of know that the NHS needs cash, right? Um, what else does it need? Well, if I can take that. So, I mean, it's worth reiterating that it really does need cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's Lots of it. Lots of it. It's, yeah. not just, it's not that it's actually that spending's gone down in absolute amounts. What we're talking about is that we've got rising demand because of an aging population. The population of over 85s is expected to double in the next 10 years, um, whereas the working wow. population isn't. So there's some really big pressures on the NHS, which mean that we do need to boost cash. That is the first thing to say. But then we're not the nhs doesn't operate in isolation from other elements of government spending and um, so for instance the public health budget is really important in terms of protecting people's health so that they then don't need to use it, the nhs um, and things like social security and the benefits that people receive also have a massive impact on people's health and well-being and therefore whether they'll go into the nhs social care would be the other one yeah and martin you were talking about the importance of mental health as well in this yeah a, a, a huge amount you know one of the issues around mental health is a lot of the um, workforce challenges you know there are there's a shortage of um, mental health nurses in addition to that a lot of our um, um, hospitals that deal and care for people with mental health issues are not um, basically do not have enough beds because they're not big enough as a result accidents and emergency departments are and crisis centres are turning people away from mental health hospitals. So we not only need um, extra um, extra cash for investment, we need it specifically to help with the workforce crisis and also infrastructure um, and capital investment as well. That's that's needed. Which all sounds great, right? But with my devil's advocate um, persona adopted, um, a lot of pundits are looking at... Um, uh, the Labour Manifesto, for instance, which does promise massive amounts of investment in the NHS and also in sectors that, I guess, take strain off the NHS, like social care, um, the social safety net more generally. They're like, great, sounds brilliant. How the hell are we going to pay for it? So, um, I mean, first thing was worth saying is that some of the spending will actually pay for itself. So if you invest in social care, which at the moment is means-tested, then you will relieve pressures on the universal service that is the NHS. Um, So we've proposed, and actually it's in the Labour Manifesto, free personal care, so that it's not that if you find out you have dementia that you're stuck on your own having to pay for that, but instead you will get service and care at the point that you need it. But then, of course, uh, if you want to increase spending, then you do have to pay for that in other ways as well sometimes. So on capital investment, I think it's completely valid for a government to borrow to do that um, because that investment will pay for itself in time. Um, But if we do want a really strong NHS service, then you also need to start looking to tax rises. Um, So that will need to come either from a kind of a, a broad set of people or I think what is very valid is asking the wealthiest in this country to pay a bit more because at the moment they're paying, they're not paying their fair share. Which takes me to, um, of course, the storied issue of whether or not a Brexit, a Brexit-free trade deal would uh, would risk putting our NHS on the table, as it were. I say to all the doubters, dude, we are going to energise the country. Thank you very much, Boris. So, let's go to our segment, It's the Economy Stupid, and I'm very glad to have both of you in in here, because this is where I try to explain a tricky economic term um, in as short and competent a way as I can, and this is me being a, not by any stretch of the imagination um, an economist. So, of course, let's talk. What the hell is a free trade deal? We keep talking about this. So... As I understand it, that's when two or more states agree to not restrict or charge for imports and exports of goods between themselves. That can bring uh, benefits, of course, but in order to smooth the trading process, this usually demands that they have some kind of regulations or standards governing how those goods are made, traded, etc., This can mean that more powerful states can demand essentially a race to the bottom in terms of 
consumer protections, environmental regulations and workers' rights that can demand access to markets that they previously didn't have access to. Sometimes it's called harmonisation, which is a very nice word, um, for a process that can uh, really screw everyone over. So some free trade agreements allow private companies to sue countries in secret courts for infringing on their right to profit from, say, banning the use of certain neurotoxic chemicals. Yes, that's actually happened. It was in Canada. Wow. Yikes. Yeah, exactly. So, in a free trade deal, I guess the devil is in the detail here. So, what do you make of, like, the whole um, the interrelatedness of our conversation between Brexit and the NHS? Like, we need to get Brexit done so we can sort the NHS out, but we can't get Brexit done until we sort out how we're going to sort out the NHS, all that kind of thing. Like, what is at stake here in the Brexit scenario? The the future of a national health service is at stake. You know, my worry, both as a doctor um, and as a and as an activist, is the fact that in any trade deal with the US, Boris Johnson will be negotiating from a weak position and will put. Um, the NHS potentially on the table. And what, what worries me is the fact that he could open up, um, currently within the um, Health and Social Care Act, there's any qualified provider provision where private companies can bid for NHS tr- contracts. What I worry is that American companies are going to have access to the NHS internal market. Yes, you know, Boris has tried to decline this, but as we saw in the debate, uh, one-on-one um, debate um, between Corbyn and um, Johnson is that there have been discussions um, between the government and the US on potentially opening up the NHS. And if that happens, that potentially could could invite the corporations into the NHS market, which will be bad for um, you know patients, it will be bad for the public. So that's my main worry. I mean, I'd agree with that, but I'd also invite anybody who thinks a free trade deal with the US and aligning with the US would be a good a good idea to have a look at the worker and environmental regulations that they actually have in the US. I think the other big issue that we need to talk about is what our economy is going to look like if we if we do leave on that deal or with no deal, and therefore what our public finances will look like, and that matters hugely for the NHS and its sustainability. Yeah, and it in it it taps into broader conversations we're having at the moment about nationalization and about the extent to which you know governments should own control publicly fund etc a kind of set of basic services and you can take a pretty accurate litmus test of where people lie on the political spectrum by asking what they'd like to nationalize or what they what they um wouldn't compromise on and um often this this gun is some pretty hysterical reactions like how on earth can you can you publicly own water like shouldn't you just and it reminds me of the kind of things that were said when we were having these conversations you know 70 odd years ago when the nhs was being created it was called um uh, hitlerian coercion um by some mps remember this was just like this was a Hitler was a very, very recent memory <laughs> at that at that point. So that is no uh, that is no small uh, deal. Um, but that kind of I guess that sense of, of fear around government control and coercion does tend to um, to really influence these debates. So, like Martin, as as um, as a prospective parliamentary candidate, what would you say to people? who are kind of scared about like government like intrusion as they might see it into the into their lives by nationalizing all of these all of these things that labor wants to nationalize so first of all i would say that you know nationalization isn't radical it's something that many countries in the west do and do well for example germany and lots of scandinavian countries um simply put it privatization has failed in many industries look at our national rail network look at the fact that they're not run efficiently and prices continue to go up and look at energy companies and energy prices i think there are some areas in the economy where the state um can rightly um kind of run things um kind of better and can help to improve things so for me i'll say don't be scared about nationalization look to our european brothers and sisters and 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 and, and see that actually bringing certain industries into public ownership could benefit the country as a whole because privatization isn't working in many of those industries. So, Karis, very uh, quickly to wrap up, um, 
we talk about public ownership, right? But it's unclear who that who that really means. Like, who's going to be owning and control and controlling it? Like, is it going to be like? Would we want the government as a body to control it, or would we want other models of ownership that are maybe not private but not state? Well, I think it's really exciting that we're actually talking about ownership as something that's important and shapes who benefits in the economy. And also that we're talking about different models. So, for instance, when it comes to energy, people are talking about community energy schemes and how actually, rather than uh, going back to an old model of public ownership, there might be more modern ways of doing things. Um, and that could mean putting power in people's hands. And that sounds like a beautiful note, a utopian note to wrap up mm. this conversation. Thank you, Karis and Martin, so much for joining me. Um, this has been Politics Matters on FUBAR Radio. You've been listening to a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to foobarradio.com.